Welcome to 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill, a church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Last time we were together, we saw how God had brought his people to the foot of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a place in the south of the Sinai Peninsula. You can get on Google Maps and see where it is. It is a desolate and deserted location. It is remote. It is not, uh, it's, it's it's a place you go for solitude. And it's interesting to me because here at the foot of Mount Sinai, God is going to begin to share his law, his truth, his righteous way of living with his people. But when is it that God actually starts to share his law with the people? It's not the very first thing he shares. And I don't know if I've said it on this podcast, but I've certainly said it on Sunday mornings, that the old paradigm was behave, belong, believe. And the idea was we're going to teach you to behave And then you can belong. And then hopefully you'll believe, maybe. Didn't always seem to be the most important thing. Most important thing always seemed to be just learn how to behave right. Learn how to conform. But what does God do? He says, you belong with me. I am your God. And then he delivers them takes them out of their slavery, their bondage, their captivity in Egypt. And then he brings them to the place where he begins to share his good ways with them. And I believe that is the model that we are trying to follow at Faith on Hill Church. Instead of saying, here's how you behave and then you can belong, what we're trying to say is, Faith on Hill is a place you can belong. It's a safe place. It's a refuge. It's a hospital to come in from the madness of the sinful world outside. And we want to point you to a place of belief that Jesus sets us free from our bondage, from our captivity, our slavery to sin and death. And then when we believe, can we show you God's good ways? That's called discipleship or sanctification, being made more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means, being made more like Jesus. And, and because of all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is, he's making us more like him. God doesn't show the people his law the very first thing. He doesn't say, do this, and then I'm going to care about you. Do this, and then I will free you. He sets them free, and then he begins to show them his good ways. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One of the questions I hear, it's very common among my generation and, and below, is what gives me the right to tell somebody how to think or how to believe? I agree. I don't have any right on my own, but I don't speak for my own. You don't speak on your own. Those of us who are Christians have been commissioned by God to be a witness of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. So we don't speak 
our own message, and we don't speak on our own authority. We speak the message, the good news of Jesus, and we speak it on his authority. God says, I'm the God that brought you out of slavery. That gives me the right to tell you how to live. I redeemed you. I saved you. I have cared for you. And that gives me the authority to speak into your life. And because Jesus has bought back this world, Jesus has redeemed this world, Jesus has made the way so that human beings could have right relationship with the Father. We speak on his authority. And he says, you are to have no other gods before me. Cast away all of your false gods. I am the only true God. Now, in these laws, there are three types of law in the Bible. There's universal law, universal truth. The Ten Commandments, by the way, are universally true. Don't murder. Everyone agrees. That's universally true. Love your neighbor. Universally true. The second type of law is national law, which we'll probably get into next week. But national law is, you know, how you put a, a nation together. Uh, they're the traffic laws of the Bible, essentially. I don't live in Israel. I certainly don't live in ancient Israel, and neither do you. Those national laws are not applicable. Then there's cultural laws, which is taking one of God's universal truths and applying them to a specific cultural situation. The right thing to do in 1950 might be the wrong thing to do in 2020. The wrong thing to do in 2020 might be the right thing to do in 2050. The point I'm making is there is a universal truth, and then how we apply that might look different in different situations. But it's universally true that there is one God. It's universally true that we are to have no other gods before him. And I think the big concept, I, I actually think the church has been, generally speaking, very good about figuring this out overall. What's the big concept? What's the big idea? The universal truth. And then how do I apply that culturally? The big concept, the universal truth here is, you were to have no other gods before me. It's to remember. Remember who God is and what God has done. And then you can take this concept here, and he says, the second command, verse 4, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself an image of any form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. So no, no idols, no graven images is the old way of saying it, of birds or angels, of beasts or men, of fish. or uh, in, in those days, it might have been some kind of... Um, mythical sea monster. He says, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So, the universal truth is no, no false images no idols. How do you apply that? There have been some who have gone to the extreme to say that all film and photography is therefore inherently evil. All art that depicts any creation is evil. 
I don't think that's what it's saying. In fact, when God told Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant, there were images, sculpted images of the cherubim. We'll get to it later in our study of the Bible, but God's people sinned. There was a, a consequence for that sin. And then God told Moses to have a the, the artisans craft a bronze serpent wrapped around a pole and to put that pole up where everybody could see it. And anyone who looked to that, that bronze serpent in faith, God would heal. Incidentally, if you ever see, um, you know, a medical symbol where you see a snake wrapped around a pole, uh, you wonder why is that part of a doctor's symbol? It's from that part of the Bible. But that's a graven image. That's an idol. That's an image. So we're talking about a universal truth and then how you apply it. I will say this experientially. I, I do know people who for them, art, film, photography is absolutely idolatrous. And they will forego all biblical truth, all gospel truth in the name of finding something that's beautiful. Do you know who the Bible says that the devil comes as an angel of light? We've tricked ourselves into thinking that the devil's this grotesque creature, but he comes beautiful and tempting. So it might be that for one person, the cultural application, the big principle is no false image. Don't worship anything that is a created thing, an idol, an image, a, a whatever. But the individual or the cultural application of that might be for one person or for one era or age that they need to move away from that sort of thing. And it might not be a big deal for someone else. The big concept here is focus. Where is your focus? The, the bronze serpent that God told Moses to make was a good thing to look in faith, to trust that God would do what he said. But then you know what happened later, hundreds of years later, one of the prophets of God had to take that bronze servant and break it in half and destroy it because people in Israel had turned it into an idol and they were worshiping it as if it were God. A good thing turned into a bad thing. Where is your focus? Now I want to focus here on a minute uh, for a minute where it says, uh, I will visit the sins of the parents onto the third and the fourth generation. And some have seen here uh, an argument for generational curses. I do not believe that is what it's talking about. I do believe what God is saying here is there's a consequence to sin. No idolatry. But the reason isn't just because God said, the reason is that there is a consequence to sin. And, and I, on, honest truth, I'm seeing this more and more in people that I know who profess faith, there is some disconnect in their lives spiritually. Something's not right. And you're seeing it now in their kids who are not walking with the Lord. Or in third generation right now, quite honestly, we have people who were a, a part of our church in the 70s and the 80s and even in the 90s. And something was was disconnected in their faith. They had pride or they, they lacked love or something was disconnected. 
and their kids still have faith, but there's no vibrancy to their faith, and they're totally disconnected from the people of God, and their grandkids have no faith. What I think God is saying to the people is, if you choose to sin, there is a consequence not just to you, but there's a consequence to others. And so for those of us who are parents, how we live as, as family, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers to their sons and daughters, affects not just us, it affects other people. Don't follow God's commands. It doesn't just affect you, it affects others negatively. Follow God's commands and there's blessings. Now, does that mean that if I follow all of God's commands that my kids will automatically be, uh, be Christians? No, they're spiritual free agents. They have to make their own choices and they have to come to their own faith. But I don't want to be the one who gets in the way of that faith. I don't want to be the one who causes the problem. So where's my focus? The next command, verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is a terribly misunderstood You can look her up on YouTube. Uh, she is a uh, PhD. She, she is a professor up uh, in Canada. Um, she is probably the, the foremost thinker on the name of God or using the Lord's name in vain or taking the Lord's name in vain. She, she's, I think, as I understand it, she's generally considered the foremost thinker on this subject right now. None of her videos on, fa on YouTube are short. Uh, you can, I think the shortest one was like 30 minutes, but she is, if you want to go deeper into what it means to not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, I, I highly recommend uh, Dr. Carmenides. Let me give you the short, quick answer on this. The reason I think it's misunderstood is two reasons. One is that we just generally don't understand this, but God was putting his name on his people. These were the people of God, the Israelites were the, were the children, the, the people that Yahweh had delivered. They, he had made them his people. And he put them geographically in, the, in a central prominent place. The land of Israel is at the crossroads between three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. The land of Israel is at the crossroads between these major cultural centers of Persia and North Africa. And, and the European Mediterranean, they, they were a known people. And God is saying, I am delivering you miraculously, and I am putting you in a prominent geographical place, and people will know who you are, and you need to live like you're my people. I also do think that this does literally mean using God's name as a swear word. I really do. I, I believe that Christians have lost a certain amount of reverence for
for God. And I do not want to be legalistic. I do not want to be condemning in any way. And I think I've got a good track record on that. But I do think there is something about how we approach the, the majesty, the wonder, the power, the awesome holiness of God so that we hear someone take the Lord's name as a swear word. H, by the way, is not Jesus' middle initial. But we hear somebody take the Lord's name as a swear word and we're like, ah, oh, that's not that big a deal, you know. The F word's really bad. The C word is really bad. You don't, you don't want to say those words. I don't think they're as bad I, as, as taking the Lord's name in vain. That's just my opinion. But I think the bigger issue is, is this idea that God had put his name on his people. I do not believe that the church has replaced Israel. I believe that the church is separate from Israel in terms of how God views the world. I do not believe that the that America is the new Israel. So I think there's always a hesitancy to want to make comparisons between Old Testament Israel and New Testament Christians, especially New Testament Christians in America. That being said, I am greatly concerned for how people who claim the name of Christ represent him in our day right now on, on social media, in public, however... There, just before I started recording this, I saw somebody post a, a video where somebody who, who claims to be a Christian pastor has a YouTube channel, and he was advocating that the Trump administration um, shoot socialists or liberals or something. Those are people that God died for, that Jesus died for, and you want them shot dead, and you claim to be a Christian pastor. I believe that that is misusing the name of the Lord. And in any way that I have misused the name of the Lord, my God, I repent and ask God to forgive me. Verse 8, he says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a day of rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We're running out of time, so this will be the last command we get to today. But I'll say this. Uh, I've taught before on the idea of Sabbath or rest. Jesus said that Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And what he meant by that is this. The idea of taking rest is a blessing from God. And you think about things like the Industrial Revolution and those factory owners and how horribly they treated people in the horrible working conditions. But every Sunday, they had to give those people a day off because Christian culture or whatever demanded it of them. I, I actually think that that has been a blessing to people unknowingly over the centuries and millennia. People need to rest. 
people need to pause. If, if during this COVID season, you have not been taking care of yourself, finding ways to rest, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally, finding ways to recharge yourself so that you can withstand the day of trouble we are in, I believe it's to our detriment. And, and I think what God is saying is, I want you to rest. This is how I've designed you. This is how I've made you. This is how I want you to act. God's ways are good and for our blessing. He doesn't want us to have idols because he knows it'll destroy us. He doesn't want us to overexert ourselves because he knows that we need to pause. Every week we have new episodes of the 20-Minute Bible Study. Every Sunday morning at 10.30, we premiere new Bible teaching on faithonhill.com or on our Facebook page. We also have an audio podcast feed as well on Apple Music or Spotify. All of our social media is at Faith on Hill. And you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com at any time with any questions. We'll see you next week as we finish studying the Ten Commandments on another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.